Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. There was one thing when you said uh, this week we are here, but next week we won't be here. All I could hear was I could hear that in Andre the Giant's voice. In uh, what, uh, what's the movie? Princess Bride. This week you are here. Next week you will not be here. Nobody else heard that? All right. Uh, the other thing, uh, faith for the sake of all is, um, dude, sorry. Welcome back. Don't throw me off guard like that. Uh, uh, this, uh, this coming week, Thursday, Faith and for the Sake of All, um, here's what's cool about it. We're going to hear about, I've been doing a class at Wash U on uh, really the racial history of St. Louis and, and, and the background there. And here's what's strange about the background of the racial history of St. Louis. It was actually pretty good up until about 1900. Um, it actually had grown quite a bit up until about 1900. And it was during the First and Second World Wars that a whole lot of the division and segregation began to happen, and it was very intentional. And so when we look at faith for the sake of all, we're going to be looking at that, how that's been set up, um, and what also is cool about that, what I think is cool about it, is um, we're going to be doing this seminar together with uh, Main Street Church uh, as, uh, and Doug Hahn and Casey Peterson there, uh, as well as um, Barmeo and Father Dotson uh, at Barmeo. Uh, so we're going to... They're, all three congregations are going to be a part of that um, and hearing the call to the people in the faith community to care. Um, so that'll be Thursday night, register by tomorrow, uh, and, um, and join us. It's free, uh, so, uh, and you can do it at home, It'll be over Zoom. So there's that. All right, uh, this morning we've been in our um, sermon series on the parables, and so this morning we are going to look at not one, not two, but three parables. And I will get you out in time for the Blues game. I love having a church where nobody knows sports. <laughs> the Blues are eliminated. One last call for Gloria, and then we're done. Um, we are in the, uh, so we're going to look at three parables. We're going to look at all at Luke 15 because they all go together. They're not, they're not sold separately. All of these parables go together. Uh, and we're in the middle of the section of Jesus' parables um, where we, we've divided it up in, into threes, the first section on uh, him preaching on the kingdom, and these are the parables that fall after the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus kind of switches tactics a little bit, and, and he's, his emphasis is still on the kingdom of God, but it's how it's manifest in this radical, outrageous grace um, that takes place. And these three uh, are no uh, different. Um, and, and it's not just the grace that is demonstrated, but it's also the grace that is received. It's the grace of Jesus that is demonstrated, but then how that needs to work in us, the evidence of that working in us. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to go through verse 24, I think, 24, uh, and, uh, and then we'll finish it up toward the end of the sermon. So Luke chapter 15, you can turn there and follow along. These parables are fairly familiar. If you've been in the church for very long, you've probably heard uh, most, if not all of them. All right, here we go. This is the context, so listen closely. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the context. Verse 3, so Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after that one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! I found the sheep that was lost. And just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. So the father divided his property between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey (laughs) into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one uh, one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. All right, that's not good. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you treat me as one of your hired servants? And so he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, signifying he's mine and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We're going to pause there, but this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Um, So we have three parables, and in everything that we do, we always want to look at the context. It's critical. The Bible doesn't first talk to us. The Bible is written to a people in a time and place to explain the eternal God. And then we have to understand the context before we can say, what is this saying to me? And so let's start with who is Jesus talking to? Luke 15, 1 through 2. Jesus is talking to uh, he's, uh, the tax collectors and sinners. We're drawing near to him. So that's the crowd that's around him. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. <laughs> now, chances are good, if, if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this. 
uh, and you probably have a basic understanding of how this goes. But I want to encourage us to kind of step back a little bit, right? It's easy. If you grew up in the church and you heard the term Pharisee, you go, yeah, those are the bad guys. Listen to me. No, they were not. I've told you this story before, but I sat in a room full of, uh, of I was invited to, to help partake in a class on teaching uh, uh, Judaism, Islam, and uh, Christianity. And, and I was sitting in a room full of Jews, and I started to actually tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and when I started, I said the word Pharisee, and the priest that was there stopped me and said, uh, let me encourage you before you go not to speak derogatorily about Pharisees. And I was like, I wish I would have thought about that. <laughs> so, it's easy for us to interpret Pharisees as the bad guys. Listen to me. In this day, they were not. They were not. They were holy, righteous men. In fact, the world was kind of broken down into two ways. There were the sinners and there were the righteous, right? When you ever, whenever you see this woman came and feasted with him and she was a sinner, and we kind of go, well, yeah, we're all sinners. Okay, that, that's, not, that's not the same context as here. Um, you were, if you were a tax collector or a sinner, uh, you were one of those people. Sometimes you were a sinner by the deeds that you did, right? If you're a tax collector, you're a traitor uh, or a woman of the night. Uh, you were a sinner because of the sinful actions you took. But you could also be a sinner if you were simply poor or marginalized or on the outside, all right? The righteous were the ones that were holy and upright and they looked right and they did the right things and they followed the rules and they did the laws and, and they were the upstanding people. Um, uh, I skipped around here, so I got to go back. Uh, Jesus has been um, raising some eyebrows here as he's been teaching. If you're a teacher in this day, it was very common. Teachers would travel around, right? We have church where everybody comes to your building. The way they did church was a little differently. You would have itinerant speakers that would travel around, Paul uh, and Apollos, right? We saw that in Galatians. Jesus was the same way. He would go around and he would teach, and the people would come to hear him. And you knew how good they were based on the crowd that they attracted. When Jesus goes to feed the 5,000, the people that were there were probably not uh, your middle-class citizens. They were probably impoverished, many of them probably close to poverty, uh, very hungry. They weren't necessarily thinking about missing a meal uh, or leaving their homes behind. They were traveling with him and going to see him. They were probably desperate in many ways. Uh, there's a story, Luke doesn't necessarily give us uh, exactly linearly where Jesus is at in, in the physical realm here, but um, there's a story right after the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke where Jesus sends his disciples into a Samaritan town, right? Samaritans were the bad guys in, in Jewish culture, but he uses them as the good guys here in a story not too long ago, but before he tells that, he sends his disciples into a Samaritan town, and they hear that Jesus is coming, and they say, well, no, 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 he faces Jerusalem, meaning he's a Jew. We ain't having nothing to do with him. And the disciples very promptly say, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus is like, calm down, boys. Now's not the time, right? And, and, and so, it's, Jesus is turning heads. His followers are the outsiders. Um, and we have to be careful in these parables to broad brush stuff. We have to be careful of going, well, these people are obviously in, and these people are obviously out. There were lots of crowds that followed him. Not all of them were saved. Some people followed Jesus to use him. 
to get food. We saw that with the feeding of the 5,000. Some people followed Jesus to love him and trust him and were giving everything to him. Some people followed Jesus to get healing. Some people followed Jesus to keep an eye on him. And they're all here. So it's under this context that Jesus is telling these parables, and the people that are flocking to Jesus are not the typical crowds for these types of conferences. Okay? Usually you want the influencers. Uh, you want the people with, um, I'm going to speak Twitter language, you want the people with like one to 5,000 followers to like your posts. You don't want the people with like two or three. Those are usually Russian bots. All right, now you're all ready for Twitter. Um, you want the influencers there. Jesus, you know, you, you want, the, and what he has is he has the, the tax collectors and the sinners. It's not a good look. These are the people flocking to this new teacher. Um, when I was in high school, uh, some buddies of mine and I got, we got free tickets to a, um, a Scorpions concert. All right, no, no judgment here. But uh, the crowd that was there was interesting. Okay? If you think back to the early 90s, right? You can kind of you can kind of judge the kind of judge the take by the crowd. I mean, we also got tickets to like a Steve Miller band and there was a, like a, a steady haze above the uh, so you know, um, the people that were were flocking to Jesus, the people that were coming to look at, listen to him, they were the dismissed. They were the outsiders. They were the poor. They were the ones that had been pushed to the side. Um, and what we see here, again, is, is the economy of Jesus and God's kingdom, it demonstrates something different than the way we, globally, not just right now, but throughout history, the way we are tempting to practice economy of who is important, of who has a spirit that is open to the coming of the kingdom. God's economy, here's the thing, God's economy operates in the right way, our global and historic economy is different. It, that's the one that's messed up. And so, um, here again, we need to undo our presuppositions of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. We can hear this. We can hear the word Pharisee. I automatically say that's bad, um, but, but it, it's not. The, the contrast here, the, 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 the um, tax collectors and sinners being the ones flocking to Jesus, it, it, the, the contrast is striking. And so in, in all three of these parables, Jesus is going to demonstrate this radical, outrageous grace and our desperate need for, us, for it across the spectrum. Everyone's desperate need. And so first we have the, the parable of the sheep. Um, if a man has a hundred sheep and one gets lost, it doesn't say how it got lost, doesn't say why it wandered off. Sheep are dumb animals, we're called sheep, so um, it's not a flattering term. And one wanders off. It gets separated from the fold. And so Jesus appeals to them. If you had 100 sheep and one got lost, you'd go and look for it, right? Of course you would. Of course you'd go and look for it. You'd leave the others in the field. He appeals to their, maybe their hearts or maybe their pocketbooks or maybe their common sense. But he puts them in a position to help see. Of, of course you'd go look for the lost sheep. And if you were able to find it, I'm sure you would probably text your friends and be like, hey, I lost a sheep. If, if anybody's available this afternoon and has a pickup truck, <laughs> you know, could you come and help me? Um, and, and when you found it, you would celebrate. 
you would rejoice. And he's saying to this, this to them, like, right? And he puts in the caveat, one sinner that repents, this crowd around me, one sinner that repents, that's the celebration. This won't even compare to the celebration of the joy in eternity when that happens. And then he goes on to the ten, into the coins. If you lost a tenth of your wealth, if you had ten coins and you lost a tenth of your wealth, you would tear up your house until you found it. Right? Right? Come on, we're a capitalistic culture, right? We wouldn't care about the sheep. We'd be like, ah, let's put a poster up. Coins, burn it down, find it. Right? Um, and, and, and he, again, compels them, appeals to them. You'd probably be worried sick. You'd tell your friends, help me come find this until you found it. And then the celebration and relief of finding it. This is what the joy of heaven would be like for one sinner that repents. Now, the first, first two parables, again, sheep are dumb animals. Uh, there's no willful decision to leave. They just get lost. It's not a rebellion. It's just getting lost or confused or pushed to the side. Coins are inanimate objects. They have no ability to rebel against us. It's misplaced. It's pushed to the side. It got swept out when something happened. And so we're not told the motive there, but but Jesus, using everyday occurrences of the lost coin being of the lost being found, uh, talks about the sense of joy, and then he tells the parable of the sons. And here's what happens in the sons: the younger son, the prodigal, basically tells his dad, "Give me my inheritance," which is essentially saying, "You're dead to me. You're dead to me." And I love how it says it. He goes on a journey, right? Anybody else go on a journey in high school or college? I did. First two years of college, I went on a journey of, of doing what I wanted to do. Um, and, uh, and here's the thing. The father complies. He divides up his property. He gives it to the younger son. And he goes out and he lives it up. He lives recklessly. This is not too long after he did that. And then, and then uh, he, he spent all of his money and he winds up starving feeding pigs, longing to eat as well as the pigs did. Think about that. My uncle was a pig farmer in, in, in middle Illinois, and wherever he'd go, I'd love to like run around the barn and everything, but I was always given the warning, don't get into the pig pen because it's nasty. And I didn't need that warning. It was gross. There were flies everywhere, and it was muddy, and they just seemed to love it. Can you imagine envying that? How bad must it be? And so eventually the son is desperate enough to come home. And he says, I, I, I have sinned against my father. Maybe he'll even let me be a servant because his servants sure eat better than I'm eating right now. And the father sees him coming from a long way off and he has compassion. Now the son recognizes the depth of his sin, what he's done to his father. And he says, I don't even deserve to be called your son, but could I at least be your servant? And the father basically says, nonsense. And he tells his servants, go get the robe. Go get the ring. He's marked as mine. What was dead is alive once again. What was lost has been found. And I can imagine him grabbing his son and hugging him and kissing him and, 
and, and I'm, the son did not smell good, probably still, but the father didn't care. To the praise of God's glorious grace, what a gracious God that we have that he would forgive and restore the prodigal, that he would have grace and compassion on a sinner such as me. It's a profound view of God's grace. Here's the deal. He, can, he appeals to the Pharisees. Uh, of course we can get it if God goes after the lost sheep, right? Everybody understands that. Of course we can get it if you lose a coin. That's valuable. That's costly. And of course you're going to overturn your house to find it. But the son, the prodigal, he rebels. That's his decision. That's what he did. That's the bed he made, and he's going to sleep in it. At bare minimum, the father's going to put some quid pro pro quos out there, right? We're going to have some rules in this household if you're going to come back. What once was dead is alive again. Could God really love and forgive someone that said to him, you are dead to me? And when he comes back in humility and desperation, God says, slaughter the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. Maybe we'll deal with the house rules tomorrow, <laughs> right? A couple of thoughts that I had on this. I had one person tell me one time, um, in their anticipation of going on a sinful journey, um, uh, and in defense of their sin, they said to me, they said, it's all good because I know that God will be here when I get back. I know God's going to forgive me. And my response to them was, you're right. Um, But I'll be honest with you, it's not God that I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the grace of God. Yeah, it'll be there. I'm worried about you returning. This may fall into the realm of what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Grace presuming the goodness and grace of God as a license to do whatever we want, right? This is maybe um, falling on the grace of God during the week and then going and doing your journey on the weekend, every weekend. God, I need your grace. Can I come back? Keep going. Don't have any expectations of me, but, I'm, but I'd like to still stay here because the food's good. What happens here? The prodigal experiences the end of himself. He gets a taste of, of what everything that he thought would fulfill him and what that would be. And he remembers how good it was in his father's house. His pride kept him away, probably the jeers and the I told you so's, but his situation becomes so dire that he's willing to risk the shame of exposure. And he repents and he throws himself at the mercy of his father. And his expectation, the furthest hope that he would have is that bare minimum, maybe he'll let me be a servant. But what he underestimates is the immeasurable goodness and grace of his father. And how much more? The sheep gets lost. The shepherd goes to look for him. The coin gets misplaced. The woman overturns her house. The son rebelliously walks away. And what's interesting in this case is the father does not chase him. He lets him go. I wonder about this a lot. Um, there's the song that, that we sing on occasion, uh, The Reckless Love of God. And I know, it, I know I, there's, there's 
some, you know, do, well, is God's love really reckless? And uh, listen, I think we can make a distinction between reckless and careless. Um, uh, and I'm okay with it because God's love really kind of blows up a whole kind, all kinds of presuppositions in, in, throughout the New Testament. But one of the lyrics in that is, you know, he, uh, he leaves the 99 to chase, to chase the one. But here in the two sons, he, he doesn't. He, le- he lets them go. He gives them his share and says, here you go. I'll be here. Um, now, we, we, can, we can doctrinalize it and all that kind of stuff, which I, I do. Um, and I do find comfort in the fact that I think the father knew how it would turn out. But regardless, we see the character of the father when the son returns. The father welcomes him home with open arms. Celebrate. He celebrates. He runs out to grab him. And and listen, this is the beautiful grace of Jesus. No one is too far gone. No one is too far lost. No one is, the, the stories are long. Your story, your friend's story, your aunt's story, your whoever that, that you think, oh my gosh, they once had such fire and passion and then they walked away. The stories are long and the, God, and the grace of God is huge. Lest we presume uh, any of us deserve it. And I would argue that most people who are chasing after these things are ultimately looking for God. Uh, a quote often credited to G.K. Chesterton, which actually wasn't his. Uh, it was a guy named Bruce Marshall. Well, I don't know, so we can still go with G.K. Chesterton if you want. But um, wrote, the man who rings the bell at the brothel unconsciously does so seeking God. What we see in the ministry of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection and his preaching and what he's doing right now and telling these parables and who is flocking to him, we see Jesus calling the prodigals to come home, those who are lost to be found, to be reconciled, that the love of the Father stands on guard, ready and waiting to celebrate what once was dead to become alive again. And in that, I would say to you, sinner, give your life to Jesus. Don't let pride and shame and arrogance, don't let the presumption of what Christianity is or isn't keep you from knowing and experiencing the love, the the amazing and incredible grace of the Father. And I will tell you, God's people have a long history of messing up. And to experience the grace of the Father is to come be a part of that messed up people. Now, we hit that, the return of the prodigal. But remember the beginning, we talked about how important the context was and who Jesus was telling this story to. He is painting a picture in these parables for the tax collectors and the sinners, but he's telling the parable to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the pious, the faithful, the righteous. And the story doesn't end in verse 24, uh, though it is a glorious picture of the radical and outrageous grace of God. There's another brother. We've got to talk about the other brother. We've got to talk about the 99 sheep and the nine coins. What about them? The ones that weren't pushed to the sides, the ones that were normative, They were faithful. They stayed in the field while the shepherd had to go chase the lost sheep. And the celebration is for the one sheep that was lost, but the other ones never ran off. Shouldn't they be celebrated? Don't all sheep matter? We get the full picture of what Jesus is saying in the story of the other son, the older son. 
Verse 25. His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. This also is the word of the Lord. For those whose testimonies, like my own, include rebellion and anger and bitterness toward God, the party scene, doing what you want and captaining your own ship, maybe you've seen the end of yourself and stood in awe and wonder that the God of grace could ever welcome you home and your constant battle is one of shame. Could I really be loved and forgiven and restored? And remembering all those things that compound you and, 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 and uh, wail at your mind and that the voice of shame would lose its power. Maybe that's your testimony but at the same time, we have to ask, well, what about obedience? The shepherd doesn't go back to the 99 sheep and go, you know, if you guys really want to experience the grace of God, you ought to run off too. Right? The father never says to the older son, here's what you should do. Ask me for your inheritance and go out and squander it. He doesn't ever say that. Should we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. But this does poke at something that if we let it sting a little bit, it can, actually, it can actually get to us. And in my view, this is far more dangerous. The obedient son, the one that went to college, the one that went on to get his master's degree and said, don't worry, Dad, I'm coming back, and I'm going to take over the family business, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to be faithful and dutiful, He never went off and rebelled. Maybe, maybe he wanted to, but he didn't do it. He never went out and partied. He was responsible. He did what he was supposed to. He was obedient. He avoided those things to serve his father. I did everything you asked me to do. And his response when his brother comes home and he hears the celebration, his response is, what about me? What about me? What's interesting, I think, is that the father runs out to both. The father goes out to the older son. The servant must come in and said, hey, I, I told Jeff that Craig was home and he didn't want to come in and celebrate. And I bet the father went, oh, man. And he goes out and he entreats him. He pleads with him. Your brother's home. Why wouldn't you come in and celebrate? Why wouldn't you party and feast? 
And he says, well, you, ne- you never even gave me so much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. There's probably context to that, right? Most of us are not mad at our fathers for that. Um, but he's mad. Well, what about me, Dad? And what the father says is, your obedience has given you all that I have. You've enjoyed it every day. You've never had to wonder where your food was coming from. You never had to wonder if you were going to have a place to sleep. You've had it. Why didn't you enjoy it? And yet in the heart of the older brother is, but I want more. I deserve more. The older son's response is devastating. It's, It's envy. I've always done what you asked me to do, and you never even gave me anything. Where's my celebration? Martin Luther has a famous quote that carries a stark warning about the idea of repentance. And he says, repent not only of your wicked deeds, but also of your damnable good works. Repent of the things that you have done that make you think you're better than somebody else. Repent not of your obedience, if your obedience leads you to delight in the law of the Lord, like we sang about earlier, and it leads you to rejoice in the goodness of the Father, and that is the reward for your obedience, then then by all means, but be careful that your obedience doesn't produce in you a sense of superiority, a sense of, I'm better, I deserve better. This kid didn't deserve to be born into this family, and yet he was. Praise be to the grace of our good God and glorious Father. But he wanted more. If we believe that our good works and our faithfulness and and our obedience somehow puts God in our debt, we are in a very, very dangerous place. This is one of our enemy's trickiest things to make us think that we somehow are better than those people. I can't tell you how many times, like, they need Jesus. Those people need Jesus. This tore me up. A a, a huge transformation in my life was in 2014 uh, when, when Ferguson erupted in protest, and all I saw night after night, those people need Jesus. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And guess what? If I have Jesus, guess who's called to be the hands and feet of Jesus to those people? We live, I think, in one of the safest places maybe in the world. Not many of us, I would gather, are fearful walking out at night. and uh, wonder if we are ever going to get shot or kidnapped or apprehended or anything like that, right? I'm, I'm going to, or, or like uh, 1982, um, uh, Red Dawn, I don't even worry about the Russians like parachuting into my high school's backyard anymore. Like I, I feel like we're pretty safe. I give out all my information regularly online, right? I fear nothing of my safety. Maybe, maybe I should fear a little bit more. 
Um, we live in one of the safest, physically safest places in the world, but I, I think we may live in one of the most dangerous places in the world spiritually. Because we can be lulled into and fall for the trap that somehow we or I have earned God's grace. Christianity that is carried with a sense of pride and your chest out is never, ever, ever the way of Jesus. She's not there. Back in 2006, I'm going to wrap up quick. I'm covering a whole chapter, so it's a little longer. Um, uh, 2006, we, we started the church. There was a foundational saying and thought that we had when we started the church. A lot of us, I grew up thinking uh, that, that, that there's two ways to live, right? There's God's way and there's man's way. And God's way is the holy and the upright. Don't drink, smoke, or chew or date the girls that do. And then, and then the man's way is the self-centered, partying, reckless living, all this kind of stuff. And, and you need to not do that and do this. And, and Tim Keller had a phenomenal quote where he looked and he said, actually what you'll see is, is, is there's three ways to live. And there's two ways actually to avoid your need for Jesus. There's an irreligious way to avoid your need for Jesus, which is what the younger son does. Give me my, you're dead to me, give me my inheritance, I'm going to go spoil it. But then there's a religious way to avoid our need for Jesus. And that's what the older brother does. I've always done everything you asked for me, God. I deserve better. I don't deserve that car accident. I don't deserve that demotion. I don't deserve, I don't deserve a global pandemic. I don't deserve a mask. I don't deserve a, pick, pick your poison. When we think, I've always done what you've asked me to do. You owe me. I had a friend that, um, who was a pastor in Houston. He was speaking at a conference one time, and he told the story of two of his four kids. He had a, an older daughter that was very difficult, always pushing the boundaries and all, always rebelling and, and, and all this kind of stuff. In 15 or 16, she left the house, and she went on her own and did all the things probably that the younger son did. She experimented in every which way possible with drugs, with sexuality, with she was all, you know, tatted up and, ear, and, and piercings everywhere, which, which is to the side, but like representational of all the stuff that she was doing. And when she turned about 27 or 28, they prayed for her constantly. They wept over her. And when she turned 27, 28, she actually came back home um, and, and repented and was brought back in and grew in her faith. And now she serves uh, with kids and teenagers at their church. It's a pretty cool story. He had a younger son. And he said, this kid was the kid that you dreamed of. He gave him all the time to worry about all the other kids. <laughs> he was always obedient. He had great grades, never got in trouble, never did anything with, was perfect son. Was always up at church helping him out, would help pick up chairs, help clean things, all that stuff. And about 24, 25 years old, this son came to him and said, Dad, um, here's the deal. Um, I don't believe this. I don't believe this stuff anymore. Um, I... I don't believe Jesus. I don't need Jesus. And he walked out of his dad's office, and you know what happened to him? He's married. He has three kids. He's a very productive member of society. He is very good and moral and upright. He contributes to the good of the city, and he has nothing to do with Jesus. Doesn't need him. His warning was, be careful for the kids that you pray for. <laughs> Here's where I want to finish. 
this idea of all of life is repentance. I want to encourage this week to, a couple of things to practice this week. One, practicing repentance, but also practicing gratitude. Some of us may need to realize and enjoy and delight in all the things that we have from the Father. The things that are ours every day as we walk in the goodness of God instead of comparing how much better I am than this person or how much worse I am than this person and just enjoying and delighting in God's grace. Um, I'll, I'll put something on the Facebook page about repentance because we've, we've already gone long, but um, think about this. Jesus doesn't answer what turns out for the older son. He doesn't tell us what happened. Here's, here's what he does. He leaves it open-ended because we're going to see how does the older son respond, respond based on how did the scribes and the Pharisees, would they take away from this? A little hint, it didn't go well. What if, what if for the older brother, what, what, what if he could have celebrated? What if the older brother would have rejoiced with a soft heart toward his younger brother? What if the older brother would have been praying regularly and then when his younger brother returned, he didn't even give a second thought? He's home, my brother is home. What if, what if the older brother was honest with the father and said, listen, I'm feeling a pinch here because the celebration, and I mean, you know what was Craig, you know what Craig did, and he, he took all the, you know, stuff, and I'm struggling with this, and if the father said, yeah, but you, everything I have is yours, what if the older brother would have said, you know what, dad, you're right? What if there was humility at work in there and not just religious comparison, and he was able to go, dad, you're, you're right. I have everything I could possibly want in the love of my father. Let's go party. Cultivating gratitude and cultivating humility. We started off the parables, the kingdom of God grows in us like the, so, like the seed in the soil. It is humility, it is repentance that works hard soil and makes it loose. And may God grant us the grace to not compare. May God grant us the grace to stop being defensive. May God grant us the grace to stop comparing of how much we have to, and, and listen, this is nothing against obedience. Stay in the field, that's great. But when the other sheep is returned, learn how to rejoice. Learn how to cry out. Learn how to weep when others weep and how to rejoice when others rejoice. And let that work on us. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Um, thank you for loving the prodigal, because I think that's where my mind goes, is have I done too much? Am I too rebellious? I am filled with shame. I hear the old voices. I hear the old condemnation. And yet, when you saw the younger brother returning, you ran out to embrace him. And so thank you for that. But God, also, man, I feel often the pinch of judgment, the pinch of arrogance and pride and the need for self-validation. And God, I am so grateful at your mercy that would come out to plead with the older brother and say, can't you enjoy what, you, what I've given you? Can't you enjoy what you have in me? and not be defensive and not say what about 
May you soften our hearts. May we truly, in a season that is divided by every possible imaginary secondary thing, may we be so overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus that we're not looking for hope in politics, that we're not looking for hope in defensiveness or self-validation, that we are so filled with the mercy of, the, of being in our Father's house that we can simply love and weep and rejoice and walk with anyone, even the sinners. May your people bear testimony to the goodness of our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.